0: That's kind of been the focus of what's been going on. But as we talked about last week, rebuilding the wall of this ancient city uh, was never the the main focus of this book in and of itself, right? That we talked about in this historical moment, rebuilding the wall was important because it was a way uh, of restarting the worship of God in this city. And that by restarting the worship of God, that God was forming his people. And so what we're really focusing on last week and kind of the week's, Uh, after this are the ways that God very specifically is forming and reclaiming the identity of his people. And one of the ways that God does that, the way he did it for these people hundreds of years ago and the way that he does it for us is by inviting us into a story that is bigger than us. So Sam, will you go ahead and come up? Guys, Sam Marshall is gonna read our scripture for us this morning, and uh, it is a little long, it's 37 verses, so already, props to Sam for doing that. But the reason that we're reading this many verses all at one time is because the story here is really important. And so what I want to ask you to do is that as you are, uh, as you're listening to this, I want you to put yourself in the, uh, in the place of a person who, who is saying, this is, this is my story. And that what I'm hearing, that what you're gonna hear as Sam reads uh, was the story of the people of Israel, but it's also our story. So, I want you to hear it kind of from that perspective, to engage it from that perspective.
1: Susan? All right. This is God's word from Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins in the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the Book of the Law their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and wor- worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Joshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiobani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaniah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it the seas, and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite. (laughs) and the Gerashite and you have kept your promise for you are righteous and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statues and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you were a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner, So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their their hand with their kings and peoples of the land, that they might do uh, with them as they would." And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You had warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them, and turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, did you, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom, enjoying your great goodness that you gave them. And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day, in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress.
0: Thanks, Sam. It's a lot of reading. (laughs) <laughs> pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, we're thankful that, that you uh, desire to speak to us and ask that you would do that this morning, God, that out of uh, a book that is very old and with the names that sound very old, Lord, would you uh, remind us that you are the same God yesterday, today, and today, and we trust that you have something to speak to us this morning and pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, in reading that whole text, I think what I wanted us to feel there is the weight of this story. Because those 37 verses are a condensed version of hundreds, maybe thousands of years of Israelite history put into uh, abbreviated form, believe it or not. That's the abridged version, okay? Uh, And and there are themes in that story that, that scripture would tell us are actually the themes of our story. Because that God, the God of that story is the God of our story. And what we're gonna be talking about this morning is the significance of story. That in rebuilding his people, one of the things that God chooses as a way to engage his people is story. Then we're gonna look at the themes of this story. And then we're gonna talk about how uh, we're called to respond to the themes of this story in the same way we see the Israelites responding to the themes of their story in their own lives. So uh, just, just to kinda help you wrap your mind around the fact that story is important to God. Right, 43% of our Bibles is narrative. That is significant, right? 43% of the Bible is made up of narrative. 33% of it is poetry, and what does that leave us with? 24% is discourse. So when you think about the letters that we studied earlier in the year, like Paul's letters, right, that are very kind of instructional, that kind of text only makes up 24% of the Bible. The vast majority of what we read is narrative that story is important to God. And it's important to God because he knows it's important to us. He knows that we crave it. He created us to be a people who learn and take, take him in, who understand our world through story. It's why we as people are always meaning-making out of the world around us. We really, our lives can't function without story. Cause and effect right the way that we perceive relationships in our world it's that's a, that's an element of story when you're meeting someone new what do you ask them hey, so what's your story right let me get to know you tell me about who you are and even people who d- even people who don't believe uh, in any kind of organization to the world right even if even people who believe that the world totally sprung up by chance and as, as a result of randomness and who have randomness kind of at the center of their worldview and there are people who will tell you that they don't believe in cause and effect that our world is governed by chance and by randomness and so cause and effect is just an illusion but you know how we know that those people believe that is they write those things in books right and then we read them and the reason they write them in books and they want us to read them is because they want to change your minds because there's no way to live and to communicate and be in a relationship with other people without this foundational belief in story. Our lives cease to have any kind of coherence uh, without, without this idea of story. And God knows that, he created us for it. The stories that we tell about ourselves, the stories that we tell about where we come from and about our futures, those stories comprise our identities. To embrace a story is to embrace an identity. Our world is built on this idea. And there's audio from a TikTok video I'm gonna play for you that's gonna explain this. So if you are not aware of what TikTok is, it is a social media app, okay, where people, mostly they're very young, uh, take videos of themselves and they, they go on a loop. So that's TikTok, okay. Can you play the audio for us, Daniel? I just kind of want to like sway as we listen to it, right? You have to start romanticizing your life. I can't even read it without using that breathy voice, right? You have to start thinking of yourself as the main character because if you don't, life will continue to pass you by. And all the little, I can't even do it, all the little things that make life so beautiful will continue to go unnoticed. Yes. That's the way that our world teaches us to think about story, is that, yes, we're all a part of a story, but in your story, you are the main character. You. Which becomes challenging when we're in a room full of main characters, right? You gotta wonder, how does that work? Because I don't need you to be a main character. I need you to be supporting actors in my life. But, but that's the way that we think about so often, the way we've taught to think up, been taught to think about our lives is that we are these autonomous individuals, and what it means to really live life to the full is to kind of take our destiny by its horns and, and, uh, and, and shape who we are, right? To look inside of ourselves and find who, who is my authentic self. And that when I finally come in touch with the core of who I am, I can now live authentically. Does that ever feel like a prison to you? Because it does to me. That so often when I look inside myself to figure out who I really am, I get more confused. That what I find in myself is a ball of contradictions. That I'm opaque to myself. Not to mention the fact that often when I look, in find it look inside myself, what I find is things that I don't like. Do you ever have that experience? And that when you're the main character of your story, right? Because what we're talking about here is not just being the main character. And you see this in TikTok, right? That and and it, it, it's, it's all over our world. It's the way we think about our world is that we're not just the main character. We're also uh, the cast and the crew and the producer and, and the writer of our story. But when that's, when that's our perspective and we find something in ourselves that we don't like, all, all we're taught to do is accept it. That's all we can do. And so we become now that we're, we're told that we're the masters of our narrative, even though so often our experience of that is that that becomes a prison to us. And you may write your story as a hero, and you may write your story as a victim. Right, kind of what we lionize is this idea of being the hero of your story. But one of the ways that we can kind of try to be the hero of our story is by always being the victim in our story. It's another way of doing the same thing of making ourselves the main character where the whole world is out to get us. Have you ever worked with a person like that? Where where every kind of thing that's happening in the office is all about everybody who's out to get them and make their work not good or not recognized? It's the, same, it's the same thing. It's all about being the main character of our stories. That we are helplessly self-focused. And what this text challenges us with is that that is not a biblical perspective at all. That what God is doing here is he is calling his people into a story that's bigger than them. He's reminding them that they are a part of something that is larger than themselves. We see that in verse 31 of this text. No, 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Right, this focus on who God is. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets. There's this hour, this collective nature of understanding our stories that goes far beyond ourselves and our individual moment. And what God does here is he's inviting us into something bigger than ourselves and that doesn't mean that who we are personally somehow gets lost. No, but that you find who you were created to be as you find yourself a part of this bigger story. We're gonna talk about what are are the themes of this story that God is calling us into? The main theme of the story that God is calling us into is the faithfulness of God. How many times do you think the word you, speaking about God, is used in this passage? Anybody want to guess? 37, 40, 100, honestly, I have no idea. (laughs) It's a lot of times, though, okay? That's the point. Right, That as you're as you listening to the story read, that what you hear over and over and over and over and over again is this focus on God, on who God is, on his actions in the world. So in verse 8, you know, it starts, this, this whole story starts with God's creation of the world, that God made the world and that God preserves the world. And then the story zooms in on this person of Abram, who is the first person that God really moves toward with covenant uh, in, in, in the world. And it says this at the end of verse 8 about God. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. That right there at the beginning of God's interaction with me and what we see is that God has kept his promise for he is righteous. And then all the way at verse 31, which is kind of the end of this narrative, it bookends with this. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God. That God and His character and his faithfulness bookends this, this chapter's description of all of God's interactions with man. that God's faithfulness is the theme of this story. I mean, we could, we could read over the kind of the other like highlight, just the verbs that we hear uh, used about God in this passage, that He saw that he divided the sea before his people, that he led his people, that he came down on Mount Sinai. He gave them right rules and good laws. He made known to them. He gave, he gave, he gave, he gave, he gave was repeated over and over and over again in this text. You multiplied their children. You brought them into the land. Again, this is all God being faithful to his covenant, faithful to his promises, faithful, faithful. You've got these exiles. Remember where we are in the story of Nehemiah? They're the God's people had been scattered abroad into these other nations because of their disobedience. And God has brought them back from all of the reaches of the earth back into Jerusalem. And what he wants them to know, what he wants them to hear as he's gathering them back together is, I am faithful. This whole time, I have been faithful. The people who were taken into exile, the people who lived in exile, the people who are coming back from exile, this whole time, God is saying, I am faithful. Do you know that if you are in Christ, that is true about your life? That whether or not you acknowledge it, God's faithfulness is the major theme of your life. Because this story is your story. And this God is your God. And he has promised that he is faithful to you. Always. And one of the gifts of having a story like this is that in our own lives, it's often so hard to picture the overall plot in our story, right? The arc of our story. We're always trying to do that, aren't we? To write the ending. I I pray that all the time. I tell God what I think the endings to the story should be all the time. And sometimes it works out the way I want, sometimes it doesn't. And what's tempting kind of in my myopic vision is to say, okay, well, you know, God didn't do what I wanted here, so is he really faithful? Yes. But the reminder of that is not my immediate circumstances, it's the whole history of God's faithfulness throughout time to God's people always. And what that allows me to do is to hold on to my conviction that God is faithful to me, even when it's hard for me to see. It's the invitation of this passage, that we would hold on to the faithfulness of God, even when it's hard for us to see. And I think the the challenge of it is that we would ask God, God, where, where have you been faithful to me in my life? As I look back on the story of my life and have some hindsight, right? Where are you faithful? And that the story that you would be telling yourself about yourself is the story of God's faithfulness. That the stories that you would keep in mind that, that would ground you uh, in who you are in Christ would be the stories of the ways that God has been faithful to you. Are you aware of what those stories are? So that's, that's, one of, that's the major theme of this passage, right, is God's faithfulness. Uh, the sub-theme, or you could call it maybe a counter-melody if you're a music person, which I am not, but I read about it this week, so that's a thing, okay? Counterme- the counter-melody of this is the people's sinfulness, We've got God's faithfulness, but the countermelody to that, the countermelody to that is the people's sinfulness. You see that starting in verses 16 and 17. But they, the people, and our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. God had delivered his people from slavery. And part of their story is that they wanted to go back to slavery. That's how strong-willed they were. That's how stubborn and stiff-necked. And you can read that and say, well, that's ridiculous. Who would ever want to go back into slavery? We do it all the time, don't we? That there are things that we know that are bad for us that we say, "I I will never do that again. And yet we find ourselves doing those things. That's a return to our slavery. It's true about us as people that the same rebellion that we see in the hearts of the Israelites is the rebellion that's in our own hearts. And then we see the people, they're they're in the promised land. It says, so they ate and they were filled and they became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness, that God had given so much to his people. In the very next verse, nevertheless. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. They rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their back. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. That the story of God is the story of God's faithfulness but the sub-theme of that, the counter-melody of that is is the rebellion in the hearts that lives in the hearts of his people. Really, it sounds like a bunch of people living as the main characters of their own story, doesn't it? who would say to God absolutely not I have no desire to submit to that I am an autonomous human being I will do what I please who are you to tell me that that's what we see in the hearts of the Israelites and that's what we see in our own hearts whether the thing that we worship is a golden calf right like the Israelites did or whether the thing that we worship is money or power or sex or fame or, or whatever it is that we choose to worship instead of God and that's also a part of our stories Scripture would tell us that. It's very clear. That yes, God is faithful, and he's faithful to people who are sinners. That sin isn't just this thing that we do. That sin is, is a core part of actually who we are. That we as people are broken people. That we as a people are people who worship the wrong things. Who, who worship things that end up hurting us and harming us and twisting us and making us not who we were created to be. that's true about us. And, and those uh, themes or the melody and the counter melody there, that is the tension of all of the Old Testament is God is so faithful and his people are so unfaithful and you think, how do these two things coexist? But what is true about a counter melody, right, is that a counter melody in a song, although it's different than the main melody, it's always there to enhance the melody itself. It's always there to make the melody of the song, the main theme of the song, more beautiful. And that's true with a, with a, with a minor theme in a novel. But a good minor theme reinforces the major theme. But that's what we see in these two uh, elements of our stories is that our lack of faithfulness only serves to underline, to highlight, to bring into prominence, to declare ever more clearly the faithfulness and the goodness and the glory and the love of God. I see that in verse 19. Right? After the people have made this golden cap, they're worshiping this this thing that is not God after all he has done for them. It says, and you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Now, even then, the pillar that led them did not depart. Even then, he gave his good spirit to instruct them. He did not withhold food or water from them. Even then, in their unfaithfulness, God was faithful. You see that in verse 27. Again, after the people have complete, committed these great blasphemies, therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies, And in the midst of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. That in contrast with our unfaithfulness God continues to be faithful. And then what we see ultimately is that tension is resolved in the giving of Jesus Christ. In the same way he gave the Israelites saviors who delivered them time and time again right from oppression He's given us Jesus Christ, who most fully delivered us from the oppression of sin in our lives. That through his life and his death and his resurrection, that what Jesus did is he bore all of the, all of the punishment, all of the wrath that we deserve because of our unfaithfulness, and he took it from us. And that, that resolution in Jesus Christ, that explains all of God's character in the Old Testament that God was able to pass over the sins of his people, that he was able to remain faithful while they were unfaithful even then because he knew what Christ was going to do. That's why we, that's why we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. That it's the resolution of these two, uh, these two themes, these two melodies, and it, and it makes it even more beautiful. if you say, well, well, should we sin then so God's grace abounds all the more? Should we just do whatever we want because God's grace is so great? You know what Paul says to that? Now you're getting it, right? He said, well, that's not exactly what he says. That's kind of what he says, okay? He says, should we sin so that grace would abound all the more? He says, no, absolutely not. But, the fact that we're asking that question means that we're starting to understand how outrageous God's grace is, that that would even be a question for you. God would really, for anything that I've ever done, God has forgiven it for Past, present, future, yes. There is nothing that you can do that God is not gonna forgive you for. That if you are in Christ, if you were in Christ, all of your sins have been forgiven. And when they were forgiven, it's not just the sins you had committed up to that moment, but when, when you were found in Christ, all of the sins that you have yet to commit, God knows about all of them, and he paid for those too. That's so much grace. So should we sin all the more? Paul says, no, no, no. that his grace and that his love is a call into obedience and to seeing the law in a totally different way. But if you're asking that question, so I can sin as much as I want, that means that you're taking steps toward understanding how outrageous God's grace actually is. Yes, this story uh, is incredibly freeing. It's the only story that you were ever going to find that is going to call you out of the prison of yourself. There's an author, James K.A. Smith, and this is kind of what he says about what it means to find ourselves in a story that's bigger than us. And he's using the example of St. Augustine, so I'm going to lightly edit it just to take out Augustine's name to help us hear it for ourselves. He says, the very notion will scandalize us. We who've been encouraged to live our truth, to come up with our own story, for whom authenticity is the burden of writing our own de novo script. The notion of a governing narrative that is not your own feels like signing over the rights to your life, which it is. But being enfolded in God's story in scripture is not an imposition, but a liberation. When you've realized that you don't even know yourself, that you're an enigma to yourself, And when you keep looking inward only to find an unplumbable depth of mystery and secrets and parts of yourself that are loathsome, then scripture isn't received as a list of commands. Instead, it breaks into your life as a light from the outside that shows you the infinite God who loves you at the bottom of the abyss. So God's word isn't experienced as a burden or a buzzkill, but as an autobiography written by the God who made us. Scripture erupts in our lives as Revelation. The story about ourselves told by another and as illumination, shining a light that helps us understand our hungers and faults and hopes. And friends, the gateway into that story is repentance. We see it in verses one and two of this passage. The Israelites separated themselves and stood up and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, they confessed. They engaged in repentance. And what we often think about the Christian life uh, is that it's this kind of chart of holiness over time, okay? You may have seen me draw this before. And that, you know, like, well down here, you know, I became a Christian and then, you know, then I I had kids and I wanted to live a better life, but then I they got older and then it got harder and then I got less holy, but then I like, I found, you know, wh- wh- and and we think about our life like this, right? And that the overall goal of the Christian life is to have a positive trend line of holiness. You're like, well, you know, I'm better than I am when I started, so that's good, right? Uh, This is a prison, isn't it? Because when I'm living my Christian life like this, I am always obsessed with measuring myself and proving to myself, and by the way, proving to you how righteous I am. There's no humility here that I am always defending my self-image to myself and to everybody else. This, friends, this is a prison. This is not the Christian life. That's pretty cool, right? I always like that part. Okay. There's a much, better, a much more accurate way to understand what it means to, to be in Christ. And that to, to trust Christ, there's this thing that happens right here, okay? You're found in him. And that's, that's the, the, the entryway into the Christian life is repentance. It's what we see in this passage. It's coming to God and confessing, Lord, uh, you are God and I am not, and I'm, I'm sinful and you are holy, and I need you. I need you to do something for me that I cannot do for myself, and you've done that for me in Christ, and I receive that from you. That's, that's the entryway into the Christian life. But I will tell you, and if you've been walking in Christ for a long time, you know this, that the longer that you're in Christ, the more that you come to understand actually how broken and sinful you are, right? Are there are going to be things that continue to surprise yourself about the way that sin still lives inside of you. Has anybody else ever had that experience? Can I get, a, can I get an in or a hand at least? Yes, right? This is true. Sometimes you come here and you leave and you think, "Jesus, I didn't even know that, th- that was wrong with me. Yes, that will happen sometimes. That is not the goal, okay? But that is, that is a positive byproduct because this is the thing that is also true is that the longer that we are in Christ, what we also see is that the holiness and the love and the grace of Jesus becomes even greater because in the sin that I continue to see in myself, what I also see is how faithful he is. That the melody to my counter melody of my own sinfulness is the grace and the glory of God. And what happens in my life over time is that the cross of Jesus Christ gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That I have the freedom of becoming smaller in my story and Christ himself becoming larger. Oh, And friends, this is so freeing. That's why repentance is such a critical and ongoing part of the Christian life that we would be a people who continue to recognize our own sin and call it out in ourselves. That when other people call it out in us, we would say, of course. Not, oh, d- well, you're misunderstanding me. You, d- you don't really know my intentions in saying that. No, no, no. Of course that's true about me because I'm a person who still has sinfulness in his life and praise God that even in those places the grace of God is for me even in those places and so repentance becomes not this way of gaining fresh forgiveness for ourselves but in embracing the forgiveness that our God has promised to us repentance is not just the entryway into the Christian life but it's an ongoing way that we engage with the grace and the mercy of God it's the way that we consistently remind ourselves that we're part of a story that's bigger than us and friends, you want to talk about uh, a changed community? Man, this kind of living? To live in a community with people who know that this is our identity in Christ? That's a sweet thing. Because now we're a community that no longer has to defend ourselves to each other. Now we're a community of true humility. Humility. a community that's able to look outside of ourselves and see the needs of the people around us and to love to go all in for them and when we when we do that and we still mess it up can say i'm so sorry but this this is the kind of community that we're building here together as we step into the story that God has for us. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we are thankful for your word. And Lord, ask that you would do uh, what you promised to do through your word, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would tell us and instruct us in who we are. Lord, that as we worship, Lord, that you would draw us into repentance and that even this morning that you would be gracious and gentle, Lord, but clear in revealing and opening up parts of our hearts to ourselves uh, that we don't like to see. Lord, would you show us those things this morning? And as we see them, Lord, as we acknowledge them uh, in our hearts to you, Lord, would you meet us there and would your mercy be sweet to us? Would you remind us what it means to be a people who have been swept up into the story of your faithfulness, Lord, and would that become uh, the melody of our song? We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.